Our next speaker, I think when he was 10 years old, wrote to the Serengeti National Park to ask for a job, which probably says something about the career that soon followed. He is the man who is in charge of the creepy crawlies at the WA Museum, Dr. Mark Harvey. Welcome to the stage. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Yes, I did write to the Serengeti National Park and the bastards didn't respond. <laughs> so here I am in Perth, but having a great time anyway. So I, in retrospect, I don't think I put a stamp on the envelope, so uh, probably wasn't very savvy. Let's hope that when we have the, uh, the vote for the plebiscite coming up shortly, 18-year-olds know how to put a stamp on the envelope and send it to Canberra. Um, look, tonight I'd like to talk about my hero. Uh, his name's Joseph Chamberlain, Joseph Conrad Chamberlain, um, largely because he started the, the modern study of the group of animals that I work on. Now, I'm known for my creepy-crawly work, but I mostly work on things called pseudoscorpions. Now, you're thinking, what on earth is a pseudoscorpion, right? So, so you're familiar with scorpions, great big things with tails and stings, and they, you know, they walk over James Bond and and uh, Indiana Jones in movies. Well, I work on their tiny little cousins. The biggest is one centimetre long, okay? So these are, these are quite small. They don't have a tail, they don't have a sting, um, but I gravitated towards them actually during my undergraduate years. Um, in second year zoology, we went through the animal kingdom. First semester, first half of the year, we started with vertebrates and it was like we're cutting up dogfish and get formalin in your eyes and all that sort of stuff. We go through the amphibians and we cut up mammals and rats and then in the second half of the year we did invertebrates and we did the marine stuff. Now I'm not fond of the beach. If anybody's ever been to the beach with me, I don't stay on beaches for very long except to go and look for pseudoscorpions up in the high tide zone but that's another story. And so we finally got to arthropods, terrestrial invertebrates, insects and their relatives and it was like a light bulb went off in my head. I eventually started doing my PhD on these things um, back in the Eocene and um, pseudoscorpions became the, the, the group of animals that I love the best and I've worked on the most. Now, you're thinking, okay, so they're small, they don't have a tail, he's just said that. So they're actually exceedingly common. If you know where to find them, you can travel around anywhere in the world, um, in terrestrial ecosystems, even in urban ecosystems, like the middle of town here in Perth, and there are pseudoscorpions. People say to me, oh, you can't find a pseudoscorpion here. I can normally scare some up underneath rocks and logs. Now, I liked them. I, was, I gravitated towards them because I was fond of any animal that could run backwards faster than it could run forwards. <laughs> I thought this is something that suited my, my lifestyle and my mantra. Um, and it turns out that uh, they're this fascinating group of animals and we've learnt about 15 years ago um, that they've got a fossil record that goes back to the Middle Devonian. So they're 390 million years old. Now they are what I call survivors, okay? So they saw the dinosaurs come and they said, see you later fellas, we're staying where, exactly where we are. Now pseudoscorpions were were first mentioned in the, in the written literature by Aristotle. He was familiar with them because sometimes they get into old libraries and they're known as book scorpions. They feed on, on book lice, sausages uh, there as well. And Carl Linnaeus, who started the modern classification of animals and plants, described the first species in 1758. So fast forward to 1898. Joseph Chamberlain was born in Utah to a, a Mormon family um, in Salt Lake City. His parents, uh, Ole Chamberlain and Mary um, Conrad, was her maiden name, changed to Chamberlain, um, were, the, were his parents. 
and Ole died when Chamberlain was only 11 years old. So after his first schooling uh, year, first year at high school, sorry, not his first schooling year, um, he had to leave school and go and earn a wage for the rest of the family. He had four siblings um, and, and a mother, a widow. So he went out and did a whole um, series of jobs to, so the family could literally eat. And then in October 1918, he was conscripted into the US Army as part of World War I. Now, luckily or unluckily, he didn't have to go and fight in Europe, but unluckily, he contracted um, the flu during the big pandemic um, that, that swept the world at the time, killed millions of people. Um, he ended up with um, pneumonia, a lung disease, and he had to have a rib removed to actually make way to get at the infection. And he was so weak that apparently they took the rib out without anaesthetic. Now, I'm not sure I could do that, to tell you the truth, um, but it was pretty remarkable. Now, when after the end of the, second, uh, the First World War, US Congress granted an education to returned servicemen um, to give them something that they could, they could try and better themselves and get a better job. And he was very fortunate to be able to um, attend the University of Utah, and he studied mechanical engineering, even though he hated it, because he was really interested in biology. Um, the tuition was extended to further years, and he, he switched to Stanford University and to study entomology, and he met a very famous entomologist who actually wasn't much older than Chamberlain himself, called Gordon Ferris. Now, Ferris was well known for his work on, on plant-sucking insects, and Chamberlain went on to do a master's degree studying what are called lac insects. Now, these are small plant-sucking insects that are still cultured in parts of Asia and other parts of the world today um, for a secretion that is then boiled down and used as shellac and, and coverings and all sorts of things. used to be on furniture. There's mostly um, uh, human-made compounds nowadays, but they're still used extensively throughout Asia. And Chamberlain wrote the classification on how to identify um, lac insects as part of his master's thesis, and that classification is still used today. He then um, switched for his PhD dissertation he switched to pseudoscorpions. Yay, good on Joseph, we all say. Um, well, that's what I say anyway. Um, he, he remembered seeing pseudoscorpions as a child. He used to make little zoos out of pins and he would have a little matchbox, he'd put pins in them and then he'd trap animals inside them and he remembered these putting pseudoscorpions inside them and they've got these, like scorpions, they've got big um, pedipalps, big, big nippers at the front and he remembered them sort of fighting each other inside these little zoos. Now... Cut a long story short, he published his PhD in 1931. Um, it, it, it's a volume that I look at on a regular basis. It set up the modern classification of pseudoscorpions, so he described um, all the suborders that we tend to use today. He elevated the numbers of families from, from five up to 18, um, described a lot of families himself, a lot of new genera, a lot of new species. But it's the most meticulous piece of work beautiful drawings. I mean, I can't... I would love to be able to draw like that in my scientific work. I'm a, I'm a pretty good drawer, but I'm, I'm not like Chamberlain was. And if, if there's ever something on a pseudoscorpion I don't understand and I don't know what it is or what it does, I go back and read this volume from 1931. So it is literally my Bible. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to extend his career in the biological sciences apart from working in the US Department of Agriculture. And so he did a lot of um, insect pest stuff. He invented a technique which I think is absolutely ingenious, a mechanised technique for trapping insects in farm-type systems. You imagine sort of roads running between big farming lots. And it consisted of now, and this to me is pure genius, strapping 
an insect net to the side of your car and driving along at 25 miles an hour. Now that, that and imagine walking around with a net doing this and that's, let's just get in the car and let's just drive, thank you very much. So um, because of the problems that he had with his lungs um, during the 40s, he developed emphysema. Um, he was probably a smoker, would be my guess as well. And he only died, he died at the age of 63 in, in 1962. I was a humble three and a half years old. I was, uh, to be quite frank, not aware of his presence until I was much older. But he was certainly remembered as a very warm, very generous human being, an excellent writer. He loved quoting poetry, could, could run off screeds of it, and also a wonderful amateur photographer. And several years ago, his son sent me a framed photo or photograph, which I had framed, of a seagull um, over the, the, flying over the waves in Oregon, where he spent most of his life. Uh, and um, and that's, that's in our family room, and I, I cherish that as a photograph that was taken by Chamberlain himself. Now, his pseudoscopion collection is mostly mounted on small microscope slides, because they're quite small, and they're stored now at the California Academy of Sciences. So I've been back there several times and examining his collections, reinterpreting some of the information that, that he learned about pseudoscorpions. So it's like that, it's that holy grail to go back and examine his material. Um, and just to wind up, um, in 2011, I was in Oregon and Washington collecting pseudoscorpions. Um, as my poor wife will attest, I collect pseudoscorpions everywhere I go. I'm, I'm treated with suspicion in my family when it's my turn to choose a holiday destination. <laughs> <clears throat> Kids look at me and say, so what are we going to be looking for, Dad? It's about this big and it lives under bark, kids. So, but they're very good at it, very, very encouraging. Um, and it turns out that when I was in Oregon, I drove past, I knew he, he lived, he spent his life in this place called Forest Grove. And it turns out I drove past the cemetery where he was buried and I didn't realise it. And I'm kind of still a little bit gutted today, so I need to go back to Oregon. Um, but a couple of years ago, very good friends of mine, a, a PhD student that I'm helping out who's now at Harvard, and a good friend of mine who lives in Portland, found his grave in the Forest Grove Cemetery and, and texted me a photograph of them looking up, beaming from his tombstone. So <laughs> here's to Joseph Chamberlain, my hero. Thank you very much.